Galatians chapter 2, starting in verse 15. This is where we get in it. This is where the book kind of really starts and it gets going and uh, gets fun. All right, Galatians chapter 2, starting in verse 15, I would remind you, this was written by Paul, it's written by the Holy Spirit, it was written a long time ago, but it was written specifically for you today. It's part of why having a divine author to this book means is that this was for you today. You were in mind when God wrote it. This is his word. We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners, yet... We know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. But if I... Excuse me. But... If in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if justification were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. Let's pray again. Father, we come to you yet again, needy creatures. And we, I would say almost all of us in here, think of ourselves very intelligent, as very intelligent people. We value our smarts a great deal. And yet when we come to passages like this, it does not take many sentences before we get confused. And we realize our intellectual gifting is not quite as high as we think it is. And so we ask in humility, that you would help. Help us to understand what your Spirit is saying here and help us to believe. We don't want to simply increase our knowledge. Knowledge is very good. Ignorance is terrible. But knowledge needs to be married with love. And so we ask that you would help us love you. Even through this, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I love the political season. You've heard me reference that a number of times. I love presidential elections. And I love them really because it makes preaching so easy. Because they are just walking and talking sermon illustrations. And because they do it publicly, I can use them and not feel guilty about it later, right? One of the things that I love about this, and no matter which side of the aisle you fall on, a Republican, Democrat, or some other category, uh, you get to watch through the presidential season this process where the media and the candidates try to prognosticate and figure out what Americans think is the really big issue. Like, what's the big deal? 
What, what is the issue that's going to make the difference? And it's funny watching them change talking points as they'll switch from immigration to health care reform to finance to who knows whatever else. Uh, if, it, you know, if they thought that it would be lightning strikes in Nevada, they would switch to talk about lightning strikes in Nevada. It doesn't matter. They want to fit the big issue that concerns America. Right? It was funny to watch this, actually, if, if you watched any last night. Watch how the talking points all changed in the space of a couple of hours, right? In case you don't know, uh, yesterday morning it was announced one of the Supreme Court justices died apparently in his sleep. The FBI is investigating, but apparently in his sleep at 79 with very little warning. It was one of the judges that would not maybe have necessarily matched our current presidential administration. And so now all of the political vultures are circling as they're trying to figure out who will the next judge be. And so in the Republican debate last night, that was the talking point. That was the issue. All of America comes down to one Supreme Court justice. Maybe a bit overstatement, uh, certainly on their part, but that, that was the talking point. It's at this point in Galatians where we finally get to see Paul's talking point. He's talked about Peter. He's talked about Barnabas. He's talked about his travels. He's talked about his calling. He's talked about the gospel. This is it. This is where the very center of his message shows up. And this is where we go, oh, I've got it now. This is what the big deal is is. If everything else is peripheral, this is the center. This is the big point. All right, so jumping from the periphery into the center, what's the big point? Well, the first thing to see is that even the best of people cannot be saved by good works. That's your first principle we're going to see. Even the best of people cannot be saved by good works. This is verses 15 and 16. He starts out with kind of self-identification, right? We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. And that, that actually sounds a bit harsh on the first reading, and that's really because it is. What Paul is addressing here is the people that he's writing against uh, were Jewish folks, Judaizers, who were valuing the Jewish ceremonial law. And the whole conversation in the early church at this point has boiled down to, for salvation, for me to go to heaven, is the equation Jesus plus nothing or Jesus plus something? What's the equation that gets me into heaven? And Paul begins to answer the math. He begins to address that by laying out, okay, who are we talking about? Well, you people in Galatia who are having issue with this, and I, Paul, we're both Jews, We keep God's law. We follow the commandments. We follow the the cultural customs of what it means to be Jewish. The Gentiles don't, which is why he calls them sinners. He doesn't mean here that they are sinning in a way uh, that is different than the Jews, like they're bigger sinners. It just means they don't know God's law. They don't know all of the Jewish culture. They don't know the sacrificial system. They don't know the ceremonial law. They They don't know any of those things. They don't keep it because they don't know it. They're not circumcised because they're not Jews. They're Gentiles. And so he's highlighting the Gentiles as kind of being these folks that don't keep the law. But we, we Jews, we do. 
We're circumcised. We're ceremonially clean. We eat the correct foods. I'm sorry, no bacon. We, we take care of ourselves the way the law tells us to. In fact, actually, they've gone way over and above what God has commanded. Yet, yeah, that, that's not the point. He introduces the parties and says, look, we're Jews. We're the real deal. We understand God's word. We keep his law. Yet, verse 16 is the key. Yet we know that a person, any person, Gentile sinner we know, Gentile pig, Jew keeping the law, we know that even the best of Jews is not justified by works of the law. Now that has a lot of vocabulary that you probably never use in common language, right? You never use the word justify unless you're singing a terrible song from the 80s, right? That's the only time you ever use the word justify in any sentence ever, right? Now you're going, which song is that? What was he referencing? (laughs) Justify my love. There it is. All right. There's a word we never use. Justify. Well, what does it mean to be justified? Right? Well, what he's talking about here is to be found innocent, to be found righteous before the Lord. That's the, the kind of the technical term that he's meaning is to be, to be found righteous, to be declared legally righteous before God. And okay, works of the law is one of those vocabulary terms that, to be honest, we never ever use unless we're talking about the confession or Galatians or Romans or anything else that, that Paul writes, really. But what he's talking about there specifically means keeping in obedience God's word keeping the moral law, and also keeping the ceremonial law at this time. And so what he's meaning here is to say, yeah, we know that a person, a dude, a lady, any person, in fact, even the best of persons, cannot be declared righteous before God by obeying the Scriptures. Even the best. That's actually, again, kind of an obvious point in some senses if you've been in the church for a long time, but one that I would maybe encourage you to reflect upon anew. To reflect upon again, to think about, because this is in essence the DNA of the American dream, right? That I will be successful because I will be better than my neighbors. I will work harder than the other people. I will be smarter than the other people. Some of you will be better looking than the other people. But you will be better than everyone else. And so it's built into our DNA. It's built into our kind of our natural ethos. It's built into our culture. Um, I have a dear friend who uh, went to college uh, in a major ACC school. And uh, when he went through his industrial engineering program, is entering a lot of his classes, the professor would just say, all right, here's what's going to happen. At the end of the semester, all of your grades will fit a bell curve. The people who score the best will be at the top. The vast majority of you will be in the middle, and the ones who do the worst will fail. I don't care if the A is 15% correct, 50% correct, or 100% correct. I don't care. I'm giving the best of you an A, I'm giving the bulk of you a C, and I'm failing the rest. And it's funny, my friend learned very carefully. He's like, I I don't really honestly care how much I know the material. 
All that I care about is that I'm smarter than the people in my class, and I know it better than them. And it was interesting, those classes, he always had study groups with all of his other classmates. So he knew exactly where he stood. Funny enough, he came out with like a 3-9 or some crazy number like that, right? (laughs) Because he figured out it has nothing to do with reality. It has everything to do with comparison. I'm constantly comparing myself to others, right? It's really one of the great number one answers. You ask people in America today, that, you know, the, the two EE questions, the classic, you know, if you're to die tonight, would you go to heaven? Yes or no? And then if you get there, why should the Lord let you into heaven? And most people are going to say, well, yeah, of course I'm going to go to heaven. I'm, I'm, of course I am. And then when you follow up and ask, well, why? It's shocking the number of Americans that say, well, because I'm better than my neighbor. <clears throat> I'm just better than you. <laughs> I mean, this is really what they're saying. When you actually say it like that, it's, it's kind of offensive, isn't it? You actually hear it the way that it is, but that is the DNA of American thing, thought. And it's interesting, that's actually the DNA of the Judaizers, the false teachers in Galatia. They're saying, look, at the end of the day, we're just better than the Gentiles. We're more obedient than they are. We keep the sacrifices more than they do. We're just better. And what's Paul's point? Even the best of people cannot be saved by good works. How are they saved? Well, they're saved by faith in Jesus Christ. Not by those works. Why? Because look at the last part of 16 there. Because by works of the law, by by keeping that law perfectly, no one will be justified. No one will be. And he, he explains this in other places, the exact reason why. And it's, it's primarily because of two things. One is that every sin, no matter how big or how small, and yes, there are differences in sizes, every sin, no matter how big or how small, is a violation of the law of God. And if you violate one part, you violate it all. Right? You violate the whole thing. Any one sin, it's like murder. Any one murder is still murder, and it's still a problem. It doesn't matter if it was a big murder or a small murder, and you know, it wasn't, they weren't an important person or they were the president. It doesn't matter. It's still murder. It's still a sin. No one can get away from that, that if you sinned once, you broke all of the law. So it doesn't matter if you're better than your neighbor. If you sinned once, you're just as done as they are. That's one problem. The other problem is what we talked about in Psalm 51. Did you notice that? In sin, my mother conceived me. Now, was David calling his mother an adulterer? No, he was not doing that, right? He was not insulting his mama. That would be bad form in the scriptures, right? Instead, he's saying that even when I came out of the womb, like upon conception, I was a sinner because I am human. I am a child of Adam, and every child of Adam has Adam's nature, right? Adam was the president of humanity, for lack of a better term. And when Adam declared war against God, everybody in his kingdom went to war with him, right? The same way that if our current president decided to declare war on Canada, we would all think he's crazy, but I would still be at war in Canada, whether I wanted it or not. And that's the issue that he's talking about here. So we, we can't keep the works of the law because if you violate one, you violated all of them. But even if you don't violate them at all, you're still at war with God because Adam was. 
You have original sin, much less the ones you've actually done. Now, it's not very often that you meet people are like, well, I've never sinned, but just in case you're one of those people, just mm, clarifying, right? Well, what do we do with that? Well, in theory, if we understand Paul's argument, this should, in essence, cut the legs out from under us to be comfortable in our good works. Right? We should no longer be able to sit in a pew and say, sweet, I love my life, I'm a good guy, I'm a good person, I got a good family, I got, a, I got this good thing going on, I'm good, I'm good, I'm good, I got it, I'm good. We should not be able to say that. Because he's introducing the main point of the scriptures with saying, you are not good enough. doesn't matter how good you are, you're not good enough. I'm not good enough, we're not good enough. That should add a little bit of sobriety to Christianity. And it should add a little bit of humility. So much effort is wasted in comparison, isn't it? I mean, I, I mean, let's take off the mask for a second, take off the Christian veneer that we have, and let's be honest and real with each other for a moment. How much time, how much energy do we waste trying to look better and be better than the Christian next to us? And let's be honest. It's a total waste. None of us are good enough. We can't be. But he doesn't stop there. Thankfully, he introduces that. I mean, that would be a really awful place to stop a letter, right? You're never good enough. You can't be good enough. Sorry. Have a good one. Right? He continues, though, thankfully, praise the Lord, in laying out the nature of the gospel, that God's grace is free and is freeing. Right? God's grace is free and is freeing. That is an unpleasant word to say. Probably should have crafted that one a little differently. All right, so he's here in verse 16 and 17. He said, look, 16 or 15, I'm sorry, you're not good. You're not good enough. No one can be good enough. Uh, he continues into 16. So the way that we can know the Lord, the way that we can experience mercy, the way that we can be right with God, the way that we can be justified, legally pronounced innocent before him, It's not by our works or by being good enough, but it's by being in Christ. Now, in uh, Paul's language, that's one of those kind of buzzwords. Anytime you scriptures, you see in Christ in Paul's writing. He uses that phrase more than anyone else. And what he means in that is we're joined to Jesus. And the way that works is Christ in his humanity and me in his Holy Spirit are knit together. Right? His humanity, that's why he has a human nature. Me and the Holy Spirit, that's why he gave it to me, are knit together. So that all the things that I've done went to him. He died on the cross for them. All the things that he did come to me and I get his righteous record. That's the reason why when God looks at me, he can be pleased with me. It's because everything that Jesus did, I have credit for. It's why I can say I died with him. I was raised with him. It's because he and I are together. We're knit together. Jesus used a lot of different illustrations for this. The vine and the branches. You remember that one in the book of John? Right? You you take a, a branch and you graft it into the vine and it gets its life and its energy and its sustenance and nourishment from the vine. They're together. They're one knit together. 
You see, that's how I am found to be justified before the Father is by being in the Lord Jesus. Christ and I, Christ and you, we may be together as one. His human nature and me and his spirit knit together. Right? It's actually the same portrait Paul's going to use in uh, the next book, in Ephesians, where he talks about how Christ uh, and his church look like husband and wife. Right? You know, husband and wife become one flesh, like literally their bodies mingled together. The same way Jesus and his people mingle together. They're, they're one, they're intimate, they're, they're joined in union. And that's only done through faith, which interestingly he gives. It's a free offer that if you believe in him, you may receive him. He gives it to you freely. It's not works that does it. It's not righteousness that does it. It's not being a good person that does it. All you have to have is faith in Christ. A free offer that he freely gives. But the fun part is it doesn't just stop with that free offer, but that free offer is actually freeing. It does something as you receive it. It's not simply like, you know, one of those um, scams that you get in the mail, you know, free such and such if you'll do so and so. And then you go and call the number and sign up and then they never leave you alone ever, forever and ever. And they continue to pester you and it's awful. Uh, It's not free at all. This one is free, but it changes you for the good as you do it. And you see this in 17 and following, right? But if, this is really hard grammar right here, this is difficult, But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is not Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. He's getting at the heart of when I am saved in Jesus, I'm no longer bound to the works of the law the same way I was. Right? Adam had that standard that if you lived perfectly, you lived, and if you weren't perfect, you died. When I'm saved by Christ, the Lord Jesus, that standard has changed for me. In fact, actually, I'm taken out of that covenant of works. I'm taken out of that perfect requirement. I'm taken out of that perfect standard, and I'm given freedom in the Lord Jesus. That's why in 18, he says, I would be a transgressor if I tried to rebuild what was torn down. If I tried to then, as God's person, try to replicate that holiness as a requirement for heaven, then I would be in trouble. You see, the heart of what he's saying here is for Christians, the standard is no different than for non-Christians. Meaning, what is required to stop being a non-believer? What is required to go from being an unconverted (laughs) non-believer? What is required? Is it perfect works? No. It's repentance and faith in the Lord Jesus, and he changes you. Perfect works never, you can't be perfect enough. You can't make God happy with perfect enough works. And interestingly, for Christians, can you make God happy with perfect enough works? (laughs) No, you can't. You're still not perfect, right? We're this side of heaven. We still can't do that, this side of the grave. And so we don't try to replicate that oppressive, legalistic obedience to the law. God's mercy is freeing as well as free. I'm going to very quickly kind of go to the third one here and then build some application at the very end, hopefully, as we see that. All right, so he's laid out that we're never good enough for God, 
right? No one is, is good enough to save themselves. Secondly, his, this grace that is given by God is, is both free and freeing. And this is the fun part. Is he, then do, he does explain what function do good works serve, right? If you're like me, which you are, we are prone to extremes. And we're prone usually to the easiest extreme. So if someone is pulling me in one direction, I'm prone to swing in that direction to the far extreme. And if they push me, I'm prone to going into the other one. And that is just classic human nature, right? Again, think of the political season and just watch how these candidates debate. It's almost hysterical how they're constantly polarizing each other and changing positions as they try to find the extreme that they think will resonate with people. We're prone to extremes. And so the initial extreme that Paul addresses is, if I do enough righteous things, God will like me. And that's not okay. And he's destroyed that. And he knows the nature of the human heart will then be say, well, guess what? (laughs) If I can't do enough righteous things to make God like me, I don't have to do any righteous things at all, do I? If his grace is free... If I can't impact my world in that way, if I can't be good enough for God, well, it doesn't matter what I do, right? Who cares? I remember sitting in 10th grade Bible class, actually, and uh, watching one of the young ladies in my class ask the question to the teacher. She said, honestly, if we believe that sinning in your heart is still sin, what's stopping me from going out and committing adultery right now? That sounds like a really appetizing idea. She was actually quite serious and was maybe not the most moral of young women. Um, the teacher, you could see, gets this look of panic as all of the young men in the room begin to calculate. And like, no, oh, this is not a good thing at all. Because she was doing that very thing, moving from, look, if, if I can't be good enough for God, then why be good at all? I mean, why be good at all if I can't be good enough for God? And it's interesting, it, it, he sees this in the last part here is that If we're joined with Jesus, good deeds are the reflection of that. It's the best way to see it. Good deeds are the best way to see you're joining with Jesus. All right, 17 and 18, he's laid out this kind of freedom of the gospel. Look at verse 19 and following, though. For through the law, all right, so God's perfect law, I died to the law so I might live to God. So I've I've been freed from this obligation uh, to be perfect. I can't be perfect. It's never going to happen. I've been freed to to be with Jesus. And I have been crucified with Christ. Remember, we're joined together. So when Christ was crucified, I died with him. Now it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Again, this joining together. And the life I now live in the flesh. So in this body, the life I am now living in this body I live by faith in the Son of God. Remember, I I have faith in Him. I've been joined with Jesus. So even now, in this body, I'm joined with Jesus and living for Him who loved Himself and gave Himself for me. Um, I do not nullify the grace of God for its justification were through the law then Christ died for no purpose. In essence, uh, this law becomes a new thing. It becomes a new way for me to live and living in this flesh, living in the Son of God, I'm able to keep this law as demonstration of my justification. And you think about it, it makes sense, right? Justification is something that takes place in heaven. Right? I was justified when Christ took my name to the Father and said, this one is mine, I died for him, he is part of me. 
And the father said, you're right. I, I totally, yes, I agree. And I was justified right then and there in glory. Took place external to me, took place in heaven. It was magnificent. Is it, can you witness that? Did you get to see that when that happened? Right? None of y'all were in heaven when that happened, so you didn't get to witness it. So there's no way you can see that. All right, well, when I was adopted by God and was adopted as one of his children, are you able to see that? Well, that also took place in heaven, and you haven't been there yet, so you didn't get to watch that one either. And when I die, I'm going to be glorified and made perfect, and you'll be able to see all of the consequences of my justification. But again, that's going to happen in heaven. That will happen after I'm dead, and hopefully you're all still alive when that happens, and so you won't get to witness either that one either. The only way we can witness justification taking place is to see the good works that flow from it. Not because we can be good enough to get away to heaven. Not because we can be better than our neighbor, but because we have Jesus in him. He's the son of righteousness. And the son of righteousness cannot shine in my soul and not leach out into other places. Right? If you get a light that bright shining, it doesn't matter where it's shining. It's going to, that light's going to get out. It's going to scatter. You'll be able to see it. If Christ is in my heart, if I'm joined with him, you will see good works flow forth. Because he is the king of good works. The king of goodness, the king of righteousness, the king of peace. Well, okay, what do we do with this? And Two quick applications. One is I would encourage you, as in long tradition of uh, our historical tradition, but other parts of the churches, to actually pause and reflect upon your good works. Right? You, you want to know your standing with the Lord. Everybody does, right? You should, at least. If you never think about your standing with the Lord, that, that's actually a massive red flag. You may not actually have a good one. But if you want to have right standing with the Lord, a great way to do that is to actually pause and to consider your good works. All right, let's look at what do my good works look like. Am I seeing justice and mercy? Am I showing charity and prudence and patience and wisdom? All of these things flowing out of me? Or are they not? If you don't have good works flowing from you in any sense, I I would really encourage you to strongly consider if you know the Lord at all. Because you don't have good works showing. Uh, Odds are very high you don't know the one who created good works. But then also to consider your motivation. Again, because in America, we, we are competitors at our heart, right? And so often our good works are simply a reflection of our desire to be better than everyone else. And those aren't good, my friends. Those works are better than doing harmful things to people. It's better to give money away to the poor for the wrong reasons than to, like, stab people. But it still aren't good works. And so I would encourage you to pause and to consider your own heart, to consider your life, to consider your good works, to contemplate your justification. And then secondly, if you are a believer, you know that you are, you pause, you look at your life, and you you kind of take inventory of where you are at, I would encourage you to endeavor to cultivate new good works. Not because they're going to get you into heaven, because they can't. But because you have been joined with Jesus. And if you are joined with Jesus, how on earth can you not try to do good deeds to glorify him? You're joined with him! 
the God-man. You are in him. Serve him with joy and gladness. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the free offer of the gospel found only in Jesus. Thank you that we cannot be good enough. No one is good enough. Only Jesus is good enough. Thank you that he is not under the president of Adam. He is the new president. Fill us with love for him as we are even now in him. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.